I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. Economists spend a lot of time thinking about exchange rates. What determines the value of foreign currencies? How international capital flows cause and respond to changes in exchange rates? What a strong or a weak currency means for a country's trade? And a host of other issues. But we don't spend much time thinking about the political dimensions of exchange rate policies and currency swings, despite the fact that these are important real-world issues. These topics have been taken up by political scientists, and foremost among them is my guest on Econofact Chats today, Professor Jeffrey Frieden of Harvard University. Jeff has published pathbreaking research on the linkages between politics and economics, and especially on the role of exchange rates. Among his many publications is the book, Currency Politics, The Political Economy of Exchange Rates. Jeff, I'm very happy to welcome you once again to Econofact Chats. Thank you, Michael. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Well, it's great to have you on again. Jeff, how did you decide to begin to do research on the politics of exchange rates? I guess there was both the practical experience and the theoretical experience. The practical experience was early in my career, I did a lot of work on Latin American debt. And one thing I noticed was that every single Latin American debt crisis, and there were a lot of them, and there continued to be a lot of them, was also a crisis of the currency. And yet very few people talked about, people talked about the politics of debt crises and the politics of debt, but very few people talked about the politics of currencies, why it was that there were currency collapses, currency crashes. So that was one spur. The other spur was more theoretical, if you will, was we always learn in macro that the exchange rate is the most important price in any economy. And it is a price that is either set by or heavily affected by the government. And yet I felt as a political economist that we weren't talking about why governments set the exchange rate where it was. So theory and practice in a way. What do political scientists bring to the study of exchange rates that economists ignore or just haven't focused on enough? Well, I think political scientists and political economists more generally tend to focus on winners and losers, who gains from a particular set of policies and who loses from a particular set of policies. So we focus on what we might call distributional effects. That is, who is benefited by a set of exchange rate policies and who might be, might be harmed by those policies. All policies have trade-offs and exchange rates are no different. They have lots and lots of trade-offs, whether it's about the, the fixing or floating the exchange rate or the level of the exchange rate. And so I think exchange rates are a great example of how any policy a government puts in place is going to help some people and hurt other people. And that's really what we focus on. Can you offer a couple of examples to illustrate that point? Well, um, currently, or for the last few years, one of the most prominent issues in U.S.-Chinese relations has been over American accusations that the Chinese have been manipulating their currency, keeping it artificially weak. An artificially weak 
Chinese currency helps some people in China and helps some people in the United States and hurts other people. So it's been very highly politicized with charges of currency manipulation. Another example, going back a long ways, is when the dollar skyrocketed in the early and mid-1980s. So we had a very, very strong dollar, which put tremendous pressure on American manufacturers and really was one of the principal sources or a major source of deindustrialization, of pressure on American industry. It led to what I think is the single biggest protectionist trade policy in modern American history, the auto policy towards Japanese automobile imports in the 1980s. So the very strong dollar led to a hot, very powerful protectionist response. And then going back to my Latin American experience, currency collapses in developing countries have been devastating. They've led to mass, they've led to revolutions, revolts, to changes in government. So all of these have been responses to big movements in exchange rates. Jeff, these examples take exchange rate movements as causes, not outcomes. In the parlance of economics, it would treat currency swings as exogenous, not endogenous. Are there ways in which political factors figure into the changes in exchange rates? Absolutely. This is, this is really what my own work focuses on, is how politics, how interest groups, how electoral factors affect government's choices of exchange rates. Um, we, you know, there, a very prominent example would be the highly political choice of many members of the European Union to join a single currency, the euro. But every choice that a government makes really is made in a political context. If a government chooses to fix its exchange rate against the U.S. dollar or to join the euro, it's doing that in a highly political environment. There's in a more, I wouldn't say trivial, but a more uh, mundane or day-to-day -day effect, governments often manipulate exchange rates around elections to try to pump up the economy to try to benefit some of the crucial political constituents in the run-up to an election. We identify, we are able to identify cycles around elections and exchange rates. Can you give an example of an electoral cycle exchange rate management? Yeah. So in Latin America, urban consumers are a crucial constituency This is the, in democratic Latin American countries. And so Latin American countries, Latin American governments typically try to keep the currency strong in the run up to an election. And what that means is it provides greater purchasing power to local consumers. So if the if the peso, take the example of the peso, if the peso is strong, it means the Mexicans or Argentines can buy more of the world's goods, buy more stereos, buy more cars, buy more uh, imported liquor, whatever it may be. They have greater purchasing power. And so governments often artificially keep the currency particularly strong in their run up to an election. There's an interesting twist on this because, as you might imagine, who you're trying to benefit depends on who is electorally important. In Latin America, generally speaking, urban consumers are very important and exporters are not that important. Latin America, Latin American societies are relatively closed. In East Asia, East Asian societies are very export oriented and the export sector is politically very powerful. So unlike in Latin America, East Asian governments often try to keep the currency weak in the run-up to an election to benefit the export sector. So we can identify unique Latin American exchange rate cycles and electoral cycles and East Asian electoral cycles as well. Jeff, so you're talking about the management of exchange rates. When I teach about exchange rates in my classes, I use the polar extremes of a fully fixed exchange rate 
or a um, fully market-determined exchange rate. What insights does political science bring to this choice between floating and fixed exchange rates? Yeah, that's. I think that's central. The the again, it's all about trade-offs. With a fixed rate, what you get is stability and predictability, and that's great if you're an international investor, if you're borrowing from abroad, if you're trading with the rest of the world. So we might say those who are most directly engaged in international economic activity are particularly benefited by a fixed rate because they get a lot of stability. But what's the cost? The cost of having a fixed rate is you have no monetary independence. Your monetary policy is fixed by your exchange rate. And that means you can't respond to local conditions. And for that matter, you can't depreciate the currency. So if you are entirely engaged in domestic economic activities, the fact that you have fixed exchange rate means that the government can't respond to local conditions with appropriate local monetary policy. So that's a really important trade-off. You're trading off stability and predictability for the lack of any independent monetary policy. So what you're mentioning is called the policy trilemma. And um, I was quoted in The Economist magazine uh, about something that I wrote once that said, all you need to know about international macroeconomics is a policy trilemma. The rest is commentary. (laughs) And the policy trilemma is this idea that you can have two of the following three, uh, management of exchange rates, central bank independence, or allowing the free flow of capital across borders. And this theoretical idea has been shown to be true in practice through empirical analyses. What are the politics of the policy trilemma? You've alluded already to this idea of being able to focus on domestic considerations and not just the exchange rate if you have a floating exchange rate, but perhaps especially with respect to capital mobility and other issues of central bank independence. What are the political aspects of this economic concept of the policy trilemma? Well, imagine that you're an international investor, and if the government chooses to limit capital mobility, that's limiting your ability to invest abroad or ultimately to borrow from abroad. So since the third leg, we've talked about um, a fixed exchange rate and monetary independence, the third leg is capital mobility. If capital mobility is a choice, as it was for many decades after World War II, choosing not to allow capital mobility really restricts some potentially very powerful economic actors, international investors, international borrowers, international banks. So that would be one example of a trade-off, right? If you're trading off capital mobility for the other two legs of the trilemma. Um, Each of the legs involves trade-offs, but the trade-offs, I want to emphasize, the trade-offs are not abstract. They affect groups. They affect industries. They affect people. And so when we think about this in a political context, I think not about the abstract notion of monetary independence or the abstract notion of a fixed exchange rate. I think about the groups that are going to be benefited by each of the legs of the of the trilemma. And in the capital mobility case, it's international investors, international borrowers, international banks are benefited by allowing capital mobility and can be harmed by restricting it. Right now, we have an interesting example of that with Russia, where after the invasion, the ruble started to plummet. But in response, the Russian central bank raised interest rates quite a bit and also restricted capital mobility because, as some people have argued, the decline of the ruble was sort of a very bad sign to the Russian population that things weren't going well. So we've seen a recovery of the ruble. Is that a good example of how there's a political aspect of the choice of capital mobility? 
Absolutely, absolutely. It's not just a signal. I think it was a, a, an important signal, as you say, but it was also the case that as the ruble plummeted, the cost of imported goods skyrocketed in Russia. And the Russian government knew very well that if the ruble stayed that weak, the, port, the cost of imported goods and, and lots of other goods in the economy were going to rise dramatically. So yes, that's a, a very good example. It's often the case in developing countries and emerging markets that when a crisis hits, the government will impose capital controls and currency controls in an, in an attempt to keep the currency from collapsing. And again, it's all about trade-offs. It means that your firms can't borrow. It means that your your residents can't put their money abroad, things along those lines. So uh, every, any any one of these choices is going to have costs. The, the cost of the, to the Russians, I should point out, is that they are maintaining an artificially strong ruble and using a lot of their reserves to keep that the ruble strong. Whether they're going to be able to, to continue to do that over a very long period of time remains to be seen. In many instances, countries have tried to maintain their currency at the level that they want to keep it at, at a particularly strong level, and eventually have not been able to do that. And they've enter into dramatic and sometimes really devastating currency crises. And the Russian Central Bank has lost access to a lot of its dollar reserves abroad That's in the right. wake of the war. That's right. Jeff, let's look at a little bit of history here. In the 1960s, the French Minister of Finance, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing, said that the United States enjoyed what he called an exorbitant privilege because of the dollar's central role in the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate system. Can you briefly explain what he meant by this and its political implications? Right. The Bretton Woods system was a system in which the U.S. dollar was fixed gold at $35 per ounce, and every other currency in the system was fixed to the U.S. dollar. So those currencies, they could move sometimes, but they didn't much. I mean, they were pretty much fixed for long periods of time. And because all the other currency were, currencies were fixed to the dollar, essentially they had to follow American monetary policy. If the U.S. was running a very loose monetary policy, then other countries had to run loose monetary policies. If the U.S. was running a very tight monetary policy, they had to follow the U.S., so that was what he meant, that, that the U.S. was essentially dictating monetary policy to the rest of the world or the rest of the Bretton Woods system. And what was happening was the U.S. was running a very loose monetary policy because there was simultaneously Johnson's Great Society program and the war in Vietnam. So what were the political implications of this? Right. So, so we had two wars that were not particularly popular, or at least that weren't funded fully by taxes and that were funded to some extent by printing money and that led to what was then considered very high inflation in the U.S. And what that meant was the rest of the world was being asked to use a dollar that was losing real value and protested vehemently. Giscard d'Estaing said at one point, the world cannot be required to keep time by a clock that is constantly losing minutes every hour. So everybody was being asked to use the dollar when the dollar was losing real value. So that then led to tremendous conflict between the Europeans, especially, and the United States, eventually led to the collapse of the system. And I imagine the inflation that was in some ways imported from the United States was politically very unpopular in these countries. Yes, yes. So, so these are countries that, did, that had no reason to print money, did not want to run inflation, that were being required, in a sense, to run inflationary policies because of their link to the U.S. dollar. So the Bretton Woods system broke down completely in 1973, 
and there is no longer fixed exchange rates with the dollar. Um, there were, as we know, fixed exchange rates within Europe, but people still speak of the dollar's central role in the world monetary system of the dollar as a reserve currency, although strictly speaking, it's not anymore, not in the sense that it was during the Bretton Woods period. What is the dollar's role now, and what are the political and not just economic implications of this? Right. So, so the dollar still is the world's currency. The vast majority of world trade, including trade among countries that are not the U.S., are denominated in dollars. The vast majority of international financial transactions are denominated in dollars. And the dollar is still the world's dominant currency held in foreign currency and private reserves. There are a lot of implications. On the more or less economic front, which has political implications, I think it gives advantages to both the U.S. government and to American firms. It makes it easier for the U.S. government to borrow because people hold dollars, want to hold dollars. It makes it easier for American firms and banks to engage in international transactions because the dollar is the world's currency. And so they have a sort of a denominational uh, advantage. Um, and then you've got the more explicitly political and in some sense geopolitical implications. You mentioned one. The Russian central bank holds 650-some billion dollars in foreign currency reserves, and they're in dollars, the vast majority of them. Because they are in dollars, they run eventually at some point through the American financial system. And that means that the U.S. government can attach them and has. So the fact that the U.S. dollar is still the world's principal currency gives American firms advantages, gives the U.S. government advantages, and also has geopolitical implications. I should also say, you know, we used to talk in thinking historically about whether the dollar followed the flag or the flag followed the dollar, our allies use dollars. Our allies are more likely to use dollars. Our allies are more likely to peg their currency explicitly or implicitly to the dollar. We could think, in fact, about a dollar block, which is pretty much coterminous with the Western alliance. So in a sense, both the flag follows the dollar and the dollar follows the flag. There are very important geopolitical and, and political effects. Well, when you're talking about exchange rate blocks, of course, the most famous one is the euro area. And the move to a single currency had economic implications, but also there was a real big political impetus for this as well. Could you talk about that a little bit? Right. Well, I think we can talk about it both in political economy and broader geopolitical terms. In the political economy sense, it was hard for a lot of Europeans to imagine, and it is hard to imagine, having a single market in Europe if national governments could devalue their currency at will. And that's what happened in the early 1990s, and that was a major source of the impetus for the, for the creation of the, of the euro. If the Spanish or Italian governments could devalue their currencies, we know a 10% devaluation is equivalent to a 10% tariff and a 10% export subsidy. So it's hard to imagine a commercial single market like the European Union has with different currencies moving around as much. So that was a very, and, and there were political pressures to try to avoid those currency movements as well. But then there's the broader political one, which is the European Union was on embarked on a project to create a more integrated market with more integrated regulatory environments, with more integrated, even eventually foreign policies. Um, and the euro was seen as a very, very important political step in that direction. In fact, there is some indication that the French and German governments, which are central to the European Union and to the politics of the European Union, essentially made a trade. The French were very eager to have a single currency. 
The Germans were less eager, but the Germans were very eager to unify Eastern and Western Germany after 1990, after 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down. So it is said that the Germans and French made a deal where the Germans would give the French currency union if the French would sign on to German unification. So you see there the, the connection between the goal of a single currency and the goal of a single European market and a single European entity. And, and I think we see that the euro has contributed in many ways to the creation of a greater sense of European union, European integration, of a European identity, especially among young people. We also see that country after country, as it tries to join the European Union, is desperate to get into the Eurozone. When the Baltic states join, their primary consideration was, can we get into the Eurozone? And they did. In a broader historical context, it's easy maybe now for people to forget that Europe was filled with blood for hundreds of years with wars within Europe, and of course in the 20th century, two devastating wars. And was there an idea that greater market integration fostered by a single currency would also lead to a more peaceful Europe? Absolutely. I mean, the principal impetus for European integration going back to the late 1940s and 1950s was to avoid falling into another, especially Franco-German conflict or broader European conflict. And we've seen over time that that has expanded. You know, when the Berlin Wall came down and the former Soviet allies in Eastern and Central Europe um, uh, left the Soviet, well, the Soviet Union collapsed as well, then incorporating those countries into first the European Union and in many instances the Eurozone was seen as a crucially important geopolitical move to try to limit the conflicts within the continent. And we see that even in the former Yugoslavia. And what is the principal consideration as people in Europe and elsewhere try to deal with some of the conflicts that have ensued after Yugoslavia broke up? Can we get those countries into the EU? And the countries that have joined the EU, like Slovenia and Croatia, are seen as having made the transition into a more peaceful, collaborative, cooperative European uh, environment. So I think that the, the connection between economics and politics is always there. And the connection between economics and geopolitics is always there. An integrated Europe is seen by most Europeans as being crucial to a peaceful Europe and vice versa. So, Jeff, I always enjoy speaking with you about the connections between politics and economics. And I learn a lot, which really informs my view of economics and my ideas about exchange rate policy. So. Thank you once again for joining me on Econofact Chats, and thanks for all your insights that you've offered today. Always a pleasure, Michael. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.